So that is it. What Graham suggests in these two chapters that an investor must do is the simple part of the equation. The not easy part is taking these lessons seriously and practicing them over long periods of time. And especially in today's times when too much information and too much noise crowds these lessons out of an investor's brain. And when too many people are seeking instant gratification. Chess legend Gary Kasparov advises this in the introduction of his book, How Life Imitates Chess. Quote, The stock market and the gridiron and the battlefield aren't as tidy as the chessboard, but in all of them, a sim single simple rule holds true. Make good decisions and you'll succeed. Make bad ones and you'll fail. End quote. Let me change this quote a bit and suggest, quote, To become an intelligent investor, a simple rule holds true. Read and seriously apply the lessons from chapters 8 and 20 of Graham's The Intelligent Investor, and you'll succeed. Don't apply those lessons, and you'll fail. End quote. Investing, after all, doesn't have to be complex to be intelligent. That's a quote from Vishal Kandawal's blog uh, that I'll link to in the show notes. And I really like the spirit of this blog post where he's writing about The Intelligent Investor by Benjamin Graham. And he's He's breaking it down and trying to explain things in a different way. And he points out that, that it's not hard to do certain things. The rules to succeed at certain things are, are pretty clear. But what the challenge is, is implementing those rules and following those rules and doing it over long periods of time and not getting distracted by things. So that's my goal for the next coming week is to avoid the distraction of things. What's not distraction? Hopefully these notes. So let's get to it. One. This first clip is from Nassim Taleb's YouTube channel. Friends, um, thank you for uh, your interest. Uh, this discussion is going to be about public misunderstanding of risk and uh, how uh, when it comes to terrorism or Ebola, the uh, the the press and uh, actually many academics people who should know better uh, conduct uh, some kind of naive empiricism and mislead us completely uh, you should never compare things that are fat tailed to things that don't have the same tail risk attribute at the collective level thin tails and fat tails should never be compared so let's start and from there uh, Nassim Taleb goes into the rest of his video and explains how comparing the infection rates from something like malaria is different from comparing the accidents rates of something like, say, falling from a ladder. And his point is that certain rates can double, and they often double, but if we don't have those doublings in our data set, that is, if we don't have that one freak occurrence in our data set, we'll be blind to it and we'll be... Uh, confused by some of the statistics we get out of it and will be confused by these distributions where we think that things are not fat-tailed. Nassim Taleb has a great framework called Mediocristan and Extremistan and those are uh, just words that he uses to describe when things are normally distributed like falling from a ladder is Mediocristan and then the big tail events like uh, malaria infection rates would fall under extreme extent. And I understood this conceptually, but it wasn't until I was taking a class 
on, from uh, the Penn State University on epidemics that I realized this. And they showed a graph from the 2014 Ebola outbreak. And uh, this was just the figures for Ebola infections uh, based on a few countries in Western Africa, like three or four countries. And, and the normal graph, it's a normal bar graph, and, it, and it's, it's, it's like a low number, low number, low number, zero, low number, low number, and, and then it goes, and then it gets to 2014. And the number is so high that the, uh, the camera work has to effectively zoom out to encompass this number. And so we have this big outlier with the 2014 Ebola infection, and that was from a, a multitude of reasons that they explain in the course, but it really articulated what Taleb is saying here about extreme extent is that if there's data that is so big that it falls outside of our models, we can't use our models. The reason this hit home is because I read the very good book, A Field Guide to Lies, and in that book, Daniel Levitin talks about how we should look at data and how we should understand it, and he says that you have to be a critical thinker nowadays. You have to be on the lookout for ways that numbers can deceive you because people are using numbers all the time to deceive you. So between what you can gather from Levitin's book, A Field Guide to Lies, and what you can gather from Nassim Taleb's YouTube videos, and what you can gather from free courses on Coursera can really help shape a more uh, constructive and more skeptical and verifying view of the world. I recently finished the book Prisoners of Geography by Tim Marshall, and it's really a good book. It really uh, explains a lot of things I didn't understand. It took a global view from 30,000 feet about why things are one way and not the other way. And, and Marshall makes the case that a lot of the situations we have in the world, whether it's the way a uh, uh, countries' boundaries fall or relationships between two countries is due to just a few factors. It's, it's um, one, is there a mountain range between two countries that makes it hard to invade and makes it hard to trade? Two, does a country have access to a warm water port? Uh, three, are there, there rivers in the country that can be used for either transporting goods via trade or to bottle up and use as hydroelectric power? And as Marshall goes around the world and he looks at different regions and he looks at these different things, it really struck me that every situation has certain strengths and certain weaknesses and the way a country develops or the way a person develops or the way a business develops is based on those strengths and weaknesses. So when Marshall gets to Europe and he talks about France, well, France was, was awesome uh, 200 years ago. It was a great country to have. It had farmland, it had natural defenses, it was a large landmass. It was unified to, to some extent by the different emperors and rulers. And you compare that to a country like Spain, and Spain had uh, a, a much uh, more difficult situation. Their rivers were less prone to transporting goods. They had mountains that restricted certain geographies that they could live in and farm. Their farmland wasn't fantastic. And so that's part of the reason we get uh, Spain discovering uh, the Americas or, or discovering it from a European perspective and, and not France because France had everything they needed. They were very content. They were very secure. They had many advantages that they could rely on, whereas Spain didn't have quite so many advantages and had to go out and explore. And that's a helpful lens to think of what your company or what yourself or, or what your relationships have. Every situation has strengths and strengths imply certain weaknesses.
This is a common theme that Ben Thompson talks about on his podcast, Exponent FM. And you can explore what Thompson has said if you listen to the archives of his podcast. But the gist is that certain companies are good at certain things and they can't pivot to something else. Apple, for example, is really good at making hardware. And the company culture and processes and systems that they've installed internally means that they excel at making hardware. And their commitment to and ability to make software is much lower. And you can compare that with Amazon, who has a much different culture, but their situation for making hardware is also different from Apple. So every situation has strengths and every situation has weaknesses. And at least identifying or being aware of what those things are can be valuable, whether it's how a country has came into being and what the history of it is with itself and its neighbors, or how a company functions within a certain sector of the business ecosystem. Three. This next clip is from an A16Z podcast between Mark Andreessen and Reed Hastings of Netflix. You know, kind of, kind of, kind of, kind of stuff like premiere premium content, and then you guys started to do. You did Fuller House, which is the sequel to Full House, which does not fit in the genre I just described. I would watch it if it did, but it doesn't. I want the I want the dark dystopian version of Full House. Um, if you're if you're taking if you're if you're taking requests, you did a big movie deal with Adam Sandler, which is a very completely different genre, and and it, and it appears, and you probably everybody saw from the reel, like you've it appears now that you've hopscotched hopscotched across many genres, and so. I was curious, like, is there a Netflix brand of content? Is there a Netflix targeted viewer? Or is it truly, is it unlimited diversity or something in the middle? Like, kind well, of the genre, like, how, how far can you stretch the genres? You know, it's often called the era of, of mass customization. And, and when you use the service, hopefully Fuller House does not get promoted to you. And it's all the dark dystopian things that you love. Yeah. And so you think Netflix gets me. And that's the emotion we're looking for. This conversation, specifically about how Netflix matches content to each user, was really in instructive to me. And I didn't know that different people got different screens on Netflix. I only log in on the rare occasion when there's something specific I want to watch. I'm searching for something, much like I would search for something on Google, rather than taking suggestions. But my wife uses Netflix a lot, and I can imagine that they have much more data on her, and they can provide her things with what she wants to watch. This idea of matching struck home because I'm reading Tyler Cowen's The Complacent Class, and he's got a large section on, in this book about matching, and Cowen makes the case that as we use matching more, as we try to find just the right fit, as we try to find services that just get us, that we're becoming a little more insulated, and we're becoming a little more insular, and that may be end up breeding some complacency with us. We're more content. In the same way we just talked about how France was content because they had so many options, because their people were well matched for the things we needed, and we saw that Spain wasn't, and so Spain ended up exploring a little more than France did, especially in, in what they called the New World. Cowan's point is that matching is pretty good. Things like eBay have helped people. Uber helps people. Even dog pounds have used this matching feature to help match people to pets. So there is a lot of value in matching, but it's, it's not all perfect. Uh, matching, like we just mentioned, can cement certain groups. It can 
build complacency because you don't have to go out and you don't have to search for the things you need. Cowan also points out that matching really hasn't been done on the large scale things. If we think of a consumer's discretionary spending, Netflix is only $9 a month or $10 a month. That's a pretty low price and that's a pretty small drop in the bucket when it comes to uh, the discretionary spending of a household. Whereas if we think about uh, paying for a house or higher education or vehicles or food, those are all much larger portions of someone's budget and none of them have really been matched all that well yet. I asked people on Twitter and I tried to come up with my own list of these sort of matching services. And one example of a matching service is the switch from ownership models to rental models. And we can see this in things like uh, the CD has moved on to Spotify, the DVD has moved on to Netflix, um, vacation homes have moved on to timeshares and, and borrowing, books have moved on to the library and Amazon's rental program, owning a home has moved to renting a home, owning clothes has moved to rent the runway, medical textbooks have moved on to apps, College textbooks have moved into the rental program as well. Bike ownership has moved on to bike sharing. Car ownership has moved on to Zipcar. So there's this system that's been created, the switch from ownership to rental, that's been capable because of these matching algorithms and these matching features. But there's still so much more room if we can get these things right. There's so much money to be saved in healthcare, for example, if we were at a to successfully match things well. So while we've gotten better at matching things and it's helped people watch more shows on Netflix, there's a lot of other things we can do, but we should always keep in mind with this matching, with this, with this desire for perfect uh, options and just the right thing to watch at just the right time, that we should also allow for a little variability in our li lives. We should allow for a contaminated lab or a random uh, walk down the street or something else. We looked at Nassim Taleb's ideas of mediocristan and extremistan earlier in this podcast, and he's got another idea called being a flaneur, and that's just walking around a city and being open to things. So for as much enjoyment you may get from Disney, which is a highly structured, well-presented vacation option, there's other features, there's other values that you can seek out if you allow in a little more randomness into your life. So I'm not sure what the balance is, but there should be some part good matching and some part randomness in your life. If you know how to do that, check out the show notes and let me know. Four. There's a lot of value in pursuing delayed gratification. That is putting in work and effort now for a payoff in the future. And normally those future payoffs are going to be much more than the certain payoffs that you could get now. Money, for example, is an easy one to quantify because we can put money in an investment account and we can watch it compound and we can see in the future that there will be a lot more money, all, uh, all things considered if all conditions hold. There's other areas too, though, like our health, where we can see compounding effects and we can see the values of delayed gratification. And this has come up a couple of times, partially from Walter Mischel's book, The Marshmallow Test, where he looks at why children are able to delay gratification. Why can kids wait for two marshmallows in the future 
or one versus one marshmallow now. And Mitchell found that after studying kids and adults and studying kids on the west coast of the United States and the east coast of the United States and different islands in Latin America, that there's something that the successful delayers do. There's a trick to this that anyone can use to better delay gratification, and that's distancing. If you can distance yourself from the temptation, then you'll be more likely to wait for something. For example, kids that were shown just a picture of a marshmallow that they would get could wait a lot longer than kids that actually had to look at a marshmallow. So there was a distancing in their association between that and the marshmallow. Another thing that worked really well is distancing uh, of sight. If the marshmallow was covered under a container that you couldn't see through, then it was out of sight, out of mind. And those children ended up waiting a lot longer than the children who had the marshmallows right in front of them. Another way to distance yourself is to distance yourself mentally and think of the things that you want to achieve in life. Think of your long-term goals and that will replace some of the current temptations that may be in front of you. In addition to distancing yourself from something, Mitchell suggested that you find what are your hot spots? What are the areas where you're most tempted by something? Is it dessert after a certain meal? Is it uh, drinking too much with a certain set of friends? Whatever the situation is, we should look at that and we could should try to build a structure around it. So, for example, if you want to check Twitter first thing in the morning, but that doesn't align with your long-term goals, you can create a structure where you delete Twitter from your phone, or you keep your phone on the other side of the room rather than next to you in bed. So, with this idea of structure in mind, let me turn on a clip from Stephen Pressfield's interview on the Art of Manliness podcast. You know, when I, when I first got out to Hollywood and started working as a screenwriter, um, I learned, and this is in the War of Art, uh, that many writers were incorporated. And um, they had their little one-man corporations. And when they signed a contract to do a script or screenplay, whatever it is, it would be FSO, for services of. So they would be their corporation um, would sign the deal for the services of them as, a, as an individual, as a private person. And I thought that was a great way of uh, separating the entity part of yourself that does the actual work from the entity that is sort of managing you. So you have to sort of, it's a great device to sort of split yourself in half. And the one half of you can kick the ass of the other half of you, you know? What Pressfield saw when he moved to Hollywood was that writers had created an artificial structure around themselves that would allow for better delayed gratification. They were able to create a distance by creating these corporations that employed only themselves. Another structuring that I found interesting was on the How I Built This podcast with Nathan Bushnell. And he was the one who founded Chuck E. Cheese and he created the Atari company. And this is what he said about how he frames businesses, how he gets his distance to make good decisions. I, I kind of view business a little bit like a game of chess. Yeah. You play the game, you play hard, sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. And then you set up the pieces and you do it again. And you don't have angst that the fact, oh my God, I lost that game of chess. What am I going to do? Woe is me. 
And uh, what that allows you to do is to view a little bit as an outsider from yourself things that happen to you. So when something doesn't work out that well, you can say, gee, that was horrible, but it was an interesting experience. What's great is that he uses language that could have come from Walter Mischel's findings that he shares in the book. View it as an outsider. Get distance. This distance allows us to be a little more objective. It allows us to get out of our monkey mind. My favorite quote on this comes from Charlie Munger, and it actually comes from his 2017 Daily Journal meeting. And we'll end on we'll end the podcast on this quote from Munger. When asked about what kind of advice he would give to his grandchildren about life, this is what Munger says. Quote, If you're glued together, honorable, get up every morning and keep doing it, keep learning every day, and you're willing to go in for a lot of deferred gratification in your life, you're going to succeed. It may not be as much as you want, but you're going to succeed. The main thing is to keep in there. Get rid of your stupidities as fast as you can and avoid the bad people as much as you can, and you'll do reasonably well. End quote. Seems like a good way to end it. For more details, check out the show notes. Thanks for listening.